week on Tuesday, April 13th, uh, hundreds of people in Minnesota gathered for a third night of protests against the police killing of yet another black man, this time 20-year-old uh, Dante Wright. Since his murder on Sunday, April 11th, demonstrations have taken place each night in and around Brooklyn Center, a suburb of Minneapolis. On Tuesday night, police yet again cracked down on protesters, launching pepper spray and flash bombs against them. Protesters have been peacefully demonstrating, chanting slogans like justice for Dante Wright and say his name. Police claim that some protesters threw rocks and water bottles at them. Police in Brooklyn Center made upwards of 60 arrests, this according to CNN. Protests have also spread to other cities across the United States, including Los Angeles, New York, and Philadelphia. Many are questioning the excuse first given for the killing that a police officer with 26 years of experience mistook her gun for a taser. Some protesters are denying that this was the case and claim the officer knew the difference between a gun and a taser or at least she should have known the difference. Prosecutors are said to decide whether to charge the officer, authorities say, shot Dante as soon as today. The Brooklyn Center Police Department released body camera footage a day after the shooting. The Washington County prosecutor is deliberating charges for former Brooklyn Center police officer Kim Potter, who submitted a resignation letter alongside police chief Tim Gannon. It was Tim Gannon who made the claim that the officer Kim Potter had made a mistake. Dante's family expressed grief and anger, calling for accountability, and questioned why police even felt the need to use force at all on their loved one. Katie, Dante's mother, recalled the phone call she had with her son when he called to ask for advice after police pulled him over. At the news conference, Wright's family was joined by Benjamin Crump, the attorney representing George Floyd's family and several of Floyd's family members. Sunday's murder of Dante is at least the third murder of a black man during a police encounter in the Minneapolis area in the last five years. Um, you know, that includes uh, Philando Castile in Falcon Heights in 2016 and the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis last year. Meanwhile, 10 miles away from where Dante Wright was killed on Tuesday, April 23rd, marked day 12 of the trial of Dever Derek Chauvin, the white police officer who killed George Floyd in May of 2020. The prosecution in Chauvin's murder trial rested its case a Tuesday morning, allowing the defense to begin to present its side. Chauvin's attorney called six witnesses, including a park police officer who was called to the scene at Cup Foods and a woman who was in the car with uh, George Floyd when police 
arrived. Shawanda Hill, the friend of George Floyd, who was in the back seat of the car when they approached, they were approached by officers, testified that she ran into Floyd at the Cup Foods convenience store and he offered to give her a ride home. She said they talked in the parked car for a while and at one point while she was on the phone, she noticed that Floyd had fallen asleep. Barry Broad, a defense use of force expert, testified that he believed Chauvin acted reasonably. When questioned by the prosecution, he conceded several points, mainly that the prone position can cause pain. At the start of the trial, Broad said he doesn't consider prone control to be a use of force, saying it didn't cause pain. Chauvin's defense is expected to finish presenting its case this week with closing arguments um, right now, as far as we know, slated for this coming Monday. Uh, before we welcome our guests, let us go to a clip from uh, BBC uh, covering uh, these uh, police killings. There's been a second night of violence on the streets of Minneapolis. Riot police face crowds of protesters angered by the fatal shooting of a black man. 20-year-old Daunt Wright was shot and died at the weekend after what the police say was an accident when an officer mistook her gun for a taser during a traffic stop. Tonight, the officer who shot him and the city's police chief have resigned. The shooting happened just a few miles from where the George Floyd murder trial is underway. From Minneapolis, Nick Bryan sent this report and a warning that it contains some distressing images. It's a uniquely American story we've told many times before. Yet another police station besieged by yet another protest after yet another shooting of an unarmed African-American. There was fury on the streets of Brooklyn Center last night. America's latest racial flashpoint just 10 miles away from where the trial is taking place of the white police officer accused of murdering George Floyd. It began as a boisterous but non-violent demonstration. A response to the police shooting of a 20-year-old black man, Dante Wright, by a female officer who claims to have mistaken her handgun for a taser. Do you know the difference between a gun and a taser? <laughs> the police were determined to enforce a curfew that came into effect as dusk turned into night. And determined to force the protesters off the streets. Let us welcome our guest, uh, Mick Crenshaw, who was born and raised in Chicago and Minneapolis. He currently resides in Portland, Oregon. Crenshaw is an independent hip-hop artist, a respected MC, a poet, educator, and an activist. Crenshaw is the lead U.S. organizer for the African hip-hop caravan and uses cultural activism as a means to develop international solidarity related to human rights and justice through hip-hop and popular education. Uh, Mike is the Northwest Regional Director of Hip-Hop Congress. Mike Crenshaw, welcome back. Thank you so much, Margaret. How are you doing? Uh, Okay, so um, before we get to the the latest in, in the Siobhan uh, trial, let us um, talk about the most recent killing now in Minneapolis, 20-year-old Dante Wright. I mean, uh, 
Mike, last time you were on the show, which wasn't that long ago, who would have thunk that just 10 miles away from where the trial of uh, Derek Chauvin taking place, yet another killing of uh, Dante Wright. Um, what is your view on, on what's happening and also this claim that the police officer, 26 years of experience, thought her gun was a taser? Mick Crenshaw. Uh, a couple of things. Unfortunately, I believe that the killings of black people by police um, of other people of color, specifically Latinx people, Native American people, they're going to continue um, into the foreseeable future because they represent a handful of underlying systemic problems that need to change on a systemic level. And that an unanswered question in terms of how long it would take to change these systemic issues. I'm talking primarily about white supremacy as an underlying core value of the institutions of policing in this country. And I'm talking about legal aspects of policing, like qualified immunity that protects officers from legal consequences in uh, cases of the use of excessive force, violation of civil rights, and police murder. Yeah, I mean, make this business about uh, it being a systemic problem. I mean, we often hear in the media or by elected officials, well, th this is just a few bad apples. Uh, but you see case after case after case. And you and I both walk in the same skin, being of, of African descent. And we know very well that at every moment that we leave our homes until we return to our homes, and even when we're in our homes, as happened with, with Brianna uh, Taylor, that you are at risk, uh, that your skin in and of itself is, is seen as a threat. Um, so th there is the, the historic uh, context of, of this, but as you say, it is, it is continuing uh, day in and day out. So what are some of the things that you think need to happen to address this? I think, you know, this, this debate, this conversation has forced me and many of us to have to look deeper at how do we make systemic change. There's a, a call for defunding of police. There's calls for various reforms. And there's calls for the abolition, the complete abolition of police as an institution. I think that we need to understand the protests have to happen. The demonstrations have to happen. The public outcry is going to happen because people are upset. And we have a long tradition of that activity in this country. But think we have to look deeper than the emotional expression of protesting and demonstrating. We have to figure out how to create systems for accountability so that we have legal protections from police force. We also have to create systems of accountability where the consequences for the use of police force impact the police department and the individual police officers in a way where it becomes no longer viable for them to think that they can get away with murder and harming us. At the same time, we have to keep our eyes on the prize of dismantling white supremacy and decolonizing and actually one day creating a society in which we are responsible for our safety and that responsibility is taken out of the state agencies that don't have accountability towards us. 
one thing I wanted to, to touch on was this whole, I, that I forgot to touch on with the first question, that this woman, who's a 26-year veteran of the police force um, and, and the leader of the police union, had forgot had uh, somehow mistaken her gun for her taser, we all know that that's baloney. Um, the history of Brooklyn Center is one in which the town was founded by a member of the Ku Klux Klan, who was also the local sheriff, who also founded the state troopers, and who also was a member of the Eugenics Society, which is a racist belief in genocide as a, as a means of social control. Sean King published an article about that. So we just we have to acknowledge everything. And to acknowledge everything, it takes a long time to say because there are so many details that give context to the fact that this is a white supremacist incident of racial terror at the hands of police. Yeah, and, you know, make the a lot of coverage, of course, Portland got for the continuing protests after the murder of George Floyd, and then the incredible um, militarization of the police in, in Portland, but we are definitely seeing that now going on in, in, in Brooklyn Center, um, Minnesota. Uh, but... Just putting this in some context here, because this militarization of the police, I mean, when you read the report that the Capitol Police were told basically to kind of, you know, not handle with kid gloves, but not really um, do what they needed to do against the, the Trump supporters, many of whom were white supremacists who invaded the U.S. Capitol, threatening to kill members of Congress, right, and then were just allowed to walk out. And given then how protesters, Black Lives Matter protesters, are treated. So uh, your comment on that. But also the wider implications of this militarization of, of the police, because you know, it has international repercussions. We see and uh, have heard, for example, that Israel helps to train uh, some of the military aspects of policing in the United States. But that also, you had a situation in Haiti where um, Donald Trump was sending money and, and tear gas uh, for weapons to be used against uh, grassroots strugglers on the ground in Haiti. So this business about the um, institutional racism and the militarization of, of police is a problem for us here living in the United States, but also particularly for people of color in other parts of the world. Mick Crenshaw. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited that we're, that you're connecting the dots, Margaret, for our listeners, because that's what we, we need to be able to do as people is to understand that the root of Western expansion of European empire, of white supremacy, of patriarchy, of capitalism, the extraction of resources for the consolidation wealth depended on the destruction and subjugation of whole populations of people. The subjugation of people of African descent forcibly displaced to the Western Hemisphere in places like Haiti, North America, the Caribbean, Central America, and South America has created the root of the Western police state apparatus that has become a global apparatus that is really the little brother of the military-industrial complex, occupying forces using violence to control a local population as an extension of settler colonialism. 
So it makes sense that Israel, being a settler colonial state, there to subjugate and commit acts of genocide and atrocities against Palestinian people in a land grab, it would make sense that their methods of controlling the population through violence, coercion, and force would be something that could inform U.S. police departments on how to do the same thing. The extraction of resources that created wealth in this country and the ways that those resources were extracted and the people who were relied on to extract them, be it displacement and genocide against Native American people, forced enslavement of African people, or Chinese labor, or even poor white labor in some instances, the police rose as a response to those people fighting for their rights for those people wanting to be liberated and for those people wanting to be free. So the police is a local occupying military force that controls the interests of private property and wealth extraction by using violence to control the population. And as manufacturing is transformed and less people are employable because of the technological advances, that means that there are going to be more people who are forced out of work. And the only way the police see fit to control the population in an economic crisis exacerbated by the pandemic is violence. So we have to think creatively as, as working people and as a society about how do we reorganize ourselves in the context of a society where more and more of us need to figure out how to support ourselves, not just economically, but in terms of community defense and sustaining our lives when we know we have a violent force that only knows how to use violence. Right. And the thing is, is that certainly the history, for example, in Los Angeles with the LAPD, with um, the late uh, police chief, uh, Daryl Gates, but also in other cities where people were recruited specifically, they were looking for folks with white supremacist views in Los Angeles. I'm sure this is true in other parts of the country as well. And also in, in terms of the military, uh, we note that close to um, a military base, for example, um, out the Marine base in 29 Palms, uh, California, there is a Trump center very on the lead up to the road to that base because they're also recruiting white supremacists and some of them actually go into the military to get that kind of training. So that that really underscores uh, some of, of what you're saying and, and said quite well, Mick Crenshaw. But um, also, you may have some thoughts on that. But this business now of the defense and the switching now to the Chauvin trial, uh, you know, one of the, the witnesses, um, I think it was this Barry Bro talking about um, George Floyd should have been resting comfortably, right, on the sidewalk and that there was no pain at all. I mean, just your reaction to this kind of thing being said in well, the courts. This, well, this is a very white supremacist mindset. And, you know, unfortunately, there are some people of color who work in institutions who have internalized and adopted this mindset. We are brutes in the eyes of these people. We are people who are less than human. We don't feel as much pain, and we have the intelligence of animals, so we're not fully developed. Uh, we're, we're, we're a lower part of the species in the mind of some of these people, and therefore it takes force to subdue us because we're such a threat. Uh, 
uh, our physical stature was such a threat. You hear Siobhan on one of the tapes talking about, one of the videos talking about how he had to do that because he called George Floyd a sizable guy. Okay? Now, a person cannot control how the, the, the rate of growth in their body. You know what I'm saying? The, the, the size of one's body is, is not a justification for the use of force. Anybody can see with their own eyes that George Floyd was in distress and begging for his life with not one but four grown men subduing him in a way in which he, he suffocated. So the fact that we live in a society where experts actually have a platform, so-called experts actually have a platform to get up in a courtroom and then to have whatever uh, they're saying be reinforced by the media in such a way where people who aren't thinking critically, people who already have racist beliefs, are going to take that information as if it is true. And it influences the public perspective. So, again, this goes back to the roots of white supremacist thinking in the minds of people who are working for institutions that impact our safety. Right, well, uh, Mick Crenshaw, Mike Crenshaw, we are going to have to leave it there, but we're going to have you back because all of this is uh, just continuing. And, of course, today we're going to know if charges are going to be brought in the Brooklyn Center um, shooting there of uh, Dante Wright. And it looks as though the defense will be wrapping up their case uh, later on this week. So we'll be speaking with you again. Uh, Mike Crenshaw, thank you for joining us. Thank you for your work.